Our scripture this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Sojourn. We say that we are a gospel-centered church, and that phrase kind of gets tossed around quite a bit, so it's helpful every now and then to remember what that phrase means. What we mean by it is that the, the gospel is the very message that forms us as a people of God and, and also continues to fuel us forward as his people. So as believers, we don't leave the gospel behind. We actually need it as we have this ongoing relationship with Christ and his need for him and his grace to continue us to continue to walk in righteousness as he would desire for us. It also means that we, we can come from passages like we just came from in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, the, this maybe the single greatest sentence ever penned. And, and we can not only then move to implications of it and kind of revisit it because we, we want to know more about it. We want to go deeper into it. Uh, and so we get to do that with great joy as a church. Uh, as we go to the, the, the kind of the follow-up of that great sentence, let's pray this prayer uh, together as we prepare to hear his word. You guys pray the, the underlined portions. Almighty, gracious Father, grant to all of us that our hearts be freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will Cherish it and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. It's through Christ our Lord, and we say together, Amen. Uh, when there's good news, there can often be a lot of questions. Hey, we won the big game. How did you win? Like, what, what happened? What, what, what happened in the, the middle of the game? Like, how did you get that big, you know, score or whatever game it is? You know, like, how did you do that thing? Uh, hey, I, I closed the, the sale at, at work. Oh, well, then what is that going to mean for us financially? And, and how is that going to work itself out? Like, what kind of taxes are we going to have to or, or Or how are we going to be able to, to pay for that next thing now that you've made that big sale? Oftentimes, with good news can come a lot of questions. They can come from skeptical places, and they can come from joyful places. And, and again, Paul has just, as we've read, uh, 21 through 26 last week, he, he pinned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit maybe the best single sentence ever written uh, about how sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God can have God's saving righteousness through their faith in Jesus uh, because Jesus is our redemption and our propitiation. He is this in himself a, a demonstration of the righteous character of God who is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in his son. And after pinning that, Paul anticipates some of the questions from that good news. Like it's the, it's the best news on earth, but he knows that there are going to be some questions that are going to flow from that. And he's going to give some answers 
to begin to give some answers in verses 27 through 31. And he does it with another diatribe. So he kind of has a, a, a person that he's uh, hearing questions from and answering quickly. There are six total questions in verses 27 through 31, and, and we can put them under, I think, kind of three headings. These are questions that, that speak about how we respond as, as individuals, as people, questions about God and, and who he is, and questions about the law. And so because there's this reality of justification by faith, that we can be made right and have right standing with God through faith in Jesus, Paul is going to move to some answers, answers about boasting to what if, what if God, is he, is he God of, of both Jews and Gentiles? And question about, well, what do we do with the law then? Paul addresses these questions that he anticipates from his, his Roman audience and from his further audience as well as we hear today. After the declaration of saving righteousness, he moves to these answers of these questions. So God's saving righteousness is, is available through Jesus, only available through Jesus. It's only received by faith or not at all. And that truth, that reality, leads to verse 27. He says, well, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 28, we hold that we are justified, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Probably can't be said too often that we are justified by faith in Jesus alone, that there is no righteousness before God apart from Jesus, is something that we need to repeat often. This is the good news for, for those who are, in chapter 1, verse 18, under the wrath of God because of all of their unrighteousness, because of their ungodliness that's present in their lives. It's good news for those who, chapter 1, verse 21, know God but don't honor God, glory in God, don't give thanks to God as He deserves. For those who would be included in the, the none, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one of chapter 3, verse 10 and following. It's good news that all of those can be included in this, those who are justified. Because we hold to that. That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What unrighteous people can't do is gain their own righteousness, earn it, achieve it, work themselves into it, but right standing before God is offered for those who can't get it on their own. Right? Justification is offered to those who can't justify themselves. And now, in Jesus, God has made a way for sinners to be made right in God's sight, to be justified by faith in Jesus alone. And if verse 28, which is a crucial you know, heading for all of 27 through 31, if verse 28, if we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, and all righteousness comes through Jesus, then what about verse 27? What about boasting? Boasting, this is a claim that's found within yourself. I'm claiming something about myself. I'm glorying about something in myself. And Paul gives a one-word response to this. Excluded, he says. We need to hear this rightly. He doesn't say, what becomes of our boasting? Diminished. He didn't say that. He didn't say lessened. He didn't say, what becomes of our boasting? It's discouraged now. He says, excluded. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. It, it, it's totally silence. And it's totally silence. It's excluded, not just because it's unnecessary, although it is. 
but because it's not even possible because there's nothing left to boast. And so he can give a one-word answer, excluded. That's what he can give because we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so the boasting then is excluded. It's not even possible. By what kind of law, he says? I think he uses the, the word law here a little bit metaphorically. He's not specifically thinking of the Mosaic law, although that's certainly included. He's saying, by what kind of rule, by what kind of system, by what kind of principle is all of our boasting excluded? By this law, this principle, this rule of works? No. But by the law, the, the principle, the system, the, the rule of faith. That the only law that establishes right relationship with God, that justifies, is the law of faith. It's faith in Christ. So the law of faith is exclusive, exclusive to our boasting then. It, it excludes all boasting because faith, what's its very nature? To be self-renouncing, not self-glorying. To, to not look inward, but to look outward at another. We're looking to Christ to find our all in him and none in us. That's the very nature of what faith is. It's a receiving of his righteousness because we don't have any in ourselves. That's the nature of faith. It looks outward. I think Paul gives a, a parallel uh, statement to this in the book of Ephesians in chapters, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The famous passage serves as a parallel. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. What is it? It's a gift of God, not the result of works. So that. He gives a so that because there is a so that. There's the good news that then has some implications. Because you've been saved by grace and it's not your own doing, there's a so that. And the so that is so that no one may boast. The gospel says something and the gospel does something. There's a so that after that. And here's what the so that he gives here in Romans and Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so that there's no boasting. Excluded or so that no one may boast, according to Ephesians. There's this parable in Luke 15. The parable that we, we know as the parable of the prodigal son that just captures my imagination. I, I cannot get away from it. You, you have this son, the, the prodigal who says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, I'm getting out of here, which is like saying, father, I wish you were dead, life is better without you, I'm going to do it my way, not your way, I think that would be much better, and that's what he does. He goes with his portion of the inheritance, and he squanders it. He lives a sinful lifestyle in rejection of his family and his father who had taken care of him and had an inheritance for him, like had loved him. He lives in rejection and rebellion of all that, and goes and he squanders it, and he hits rock bottom. When he hits rock bottom, you know what he says? He's like, man, maybe I should go back to my father. Because even his servants aren't as low as what I'm in right now. And when he comes back, he's this son who comes back without a boast. Luke chapter 15, verse 21. Here's his speech. He practiced it on the way. He said, and father... I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no wor longer worthy to be called your son. And yet, by the grace and love of this father, here's what happens. The father says, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son 
This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. He was welcomed back in by his father that he'd rejected and given a death wish to earlier in his life. He'd been welcomed back in. And as he's welcomed back in, he still has no boast before the father. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy to be called your son. And yet what's the father doing? He's graciously just bestowing sonship on him. And that's a picture of the gospel. The sin of man and where we are, where we would live in rejection of our good God and Father who loves us and say, no, I think life is actually better without you. And then this turning from sin, real, realizing that what we're doing before God, because we can know these things because of Romans 1, that we, we, although we know God, we don't acknowledge God. It, it's a picture of the love and grace of the Father and this glad reception, this, this gracious reception of us back with no cost, but also with no boast. But in Luke chapter 15, that, that parable is a parable that's part of three parables that Jesus says. And, and before those three parables, this is how Jesus starts. This is how Luke describes it, 15 verse 2. The Pharisees and the, the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so it's in response to that that Jesus is going to rattle off three parables. The first one is a sheep. There's a sheep that's lost, and the sheep is found, and there's rejoicing. And then he moves to a coin, right? There's a, there's a coin that's lost, it's found, and there's rejoicing. And then we have this, this parable of the son. The son is lost, the son is found, and there's rejoicing. Right? There's a pattern that's going on here. But the third parable doesn't end with rejoicing, does it? Look back at the end of chapter 15. We have lost, it's been found, there's rejoicing, and then there's this. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, returns, you've, you've killed the fattened calf for him. What does the older son come with? He comes with a boast. What does he say? I've contributed so much to you. I, I, I've not disobeyed you. I've, I've served you faithfully. Look at all that I've contributed. Look at all that I've done. I've done so much. He hasn't contributed anything. He's actually wasted. He squandered this. You know that, right, Father? He wasted what you had given him. He hasn't contributed anything. He hasn't done anything but, but go away from you. I've been here this whole time and I've not disobeyed you. I've not ran away from you. And yet, he looks at the party and he knows that the party is for the younger son. He's upset with the grace that the father has shown and as we end the parable, I think Jesus means for the parable to end without much conclusion on, on what's 
going to happen next because remember, he's responding to the scribes and the Pharisees who are upset that Jesus would be around sinners. And that's what this father does. He receives back a sinner without a boast. He has nothing left to boast and the father still receives him back. And so we need to ask the question, I think, well, which son do you identify with more? And I think we need to be slow here. Which son do we really identify with more? And and perhaps it's both. Is all boasting in your life before God excluded? Or can we be kind of like this older brother and hold on to some shred of boasting? I've obeyed you, God. Or we could say it this way, I'm I'm not as bad, so I don't need as much righteousness as him. Maybe I need some, but it isn't as much as that guy. I've served you, right? I have more reason for you to want to come out and invite me in than for you to want to invite that person in. We could give a lot of other reasons. The older son gives reasons why he should have a party. I've not disobeyed. I've served you these many years. He has a because I've done this. Because I've obeyed. Because I've served you. And the question for us is, do you have any because I before God? Because I obeyed God? Because I served you, God? Because I've been baptized? Because I've, get this one, because I've believed? Because I've had faith? Remember, faith never says because I. It only looks and says him, him. If there's a shred of because I in us, a shred of something that we contribute to our own righteousness, then we have a reason to boast before God. And so one theologian says this, so long as the minutest portion of our own righteousness remains, we still have some ground for boasting. But as it is, by faith alone, verse 28 There is nothing that we can claim for ourselves, for faith receives all from God and brings nothing except a humble confession of wants. It says we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. One is justified by faith alone. And and so what we could do is we could go back to this prodigal son, right? And we used to do some interviews. And we talked to the, we're we're in the party and we're doing interviews. Like, prodigal son, here you are. Uh, Why should you be in here? How, How in the world did you get in here? The the prodigal son would not say, because I. He said, because him. The prodigal has I statements, right? I've sinned against you, Father. I've squandered this. I've blown it. They're not positive I statements. They're not positive contributions for why I should be in the party. They're all sin. And that's the same righteousness that we bring to the table. That's the same thing we can bring into this equation of saving righteousness before God. Not one shred of our own righteousness, but a a full record of our own unrighteousness. Of all those things listed in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, oh, sexual immorality, the, the judgment of others in chapter 2, the, the self-righteousness, the, the thinking that we don't need something from God, we bring all of that record of unrighteousness before God, and it's in that place with our own record of unrighteousness and the identification of our need before God that God can meet us with saving righteousness. And 
That's why if we are justified, and when we think about justification, there is no boasting. Because all we contribute to the equation is our own unrighteousness. And God's righteousness, his saving righteousness, his justifying righteousness is only ever received. And so boasting is then, what do we do with it? One word, excluded. There's no because I, there's only because of the Father, because of what he has done. It doesn't lead us to boasting, but rejoicing. And, and that seems to characterize those who are justified, right? You, you get glimpses of heaven. And what are they, what's characterizing those saints that are in heaven? Praise, worship, rejoicing. They, they're never saying because I. And in Luke 15, the, the celebration is for the, the one who comes to the Father without a boast. Then the Father sweeps him up in sonship and draws him into this great party that he's going to provide at his expense. That's who the party's for. The boaster, he's on the outside. And he wonders why the prodigal's in there. Justification by faith alone excludes boasting. But it very much includes the celebration and rejoicing. So what if you're boasting? Is it excluded by the law of faith because you have right standing before God and it's only gained because of what Jesus has done on your behalf? Does all of your righteousness, all of it, not leaving any tiny little minutest portion or shred to anything else, does all of it come from God? And if that's true, then does rejoicing characterize you because you're Saving righteousness that you couldn't earn on your own has been received from a gracious Father whose Son would be your propitiation or redemption that's rejoicing then characterize your life. Those justified by faith in Jesus, they, they don't have a boast, but they have all sorts of things to celebrate as recipients of God's grace, of, as recipients of His saving righteousness. And so has our previous boasting of something maybe we've, we've served, we've obeyed, we've done these things, has, has, that, has that boasting been dissolved into rejoicing and praise to God? The question of what becomes of our boasting in light of the law of faith, Paul answers clearly and with one word, excluded. Now that's not the end of his questions, all right? more questions are lingering, and he moves to the second kind of set of questions, that's not so much about the individual's response, but, well, then what do we say about God? What about God? What, what does this mean about God? And you can get the flow of thought from verse 28 being central to this text and, and moving out. All right, if we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law, all right, well, then what do we say about God? Now, you see the God of verse 29, the, the Jews only? Because that's what we've known, right? God, God we know, has, been, has revealed himself uniquely to the, the Jews. Like, the, they have some sort of special status. They're thinking that at least for sure, right? They're saying, hey, wait a second. We are your people. You are our God. Now what are we going to say? If we're justified by faith and it's apart from works of the law, then what are we going to say about others who join by faith? Are you their God too in the same way you're our God? Is he the God of the Gentiles also? Paul says yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. But justification by faith alone, again, has major implications. And one of the major ones is that sinners can be justified. Those who, verse 22, that there's no distinction between them. They've all fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Those people, the sinners, can be justified by faith in Jesus. All who are under God's wrath, who deserved God's wrath, both Jew and Gentile, qualifies all people for saving righteousness from God. And he says, there's one way for those who are under that wrath to escape from it, to be justified, to gain right standing before God. What is it? Verse 30, he justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, you guys are, are diligent to read scripture well, and you notice like there's a flip in prepositions there, by and through. Now, I don't think there's any difference whatsoever in Paul's meaning in those. I think you'd be hard-pressed to figure out one if there was one there because he gives absolutely no explanation for it, and that'd be a pretty big flip if there's a difference but he doesn't say anything about it. Uh, one commentator said maybe he's kind of being ironic, like, oh, you want to know the distinction between Jews and Gentiles? Well, one is by and one is through. <laughs> like maybe he's making a, a, a special point there to say we're all justified the same way. But it, notice how he says it. It's not through becoming a Jew. Hey, if you were to join the people of God in the Old Testament, you would need to become part of that people. It's not through becoming a Jew. It's not through keeping the law that one is justified. It's not through circumcision. Like, that's a big one, right? I mean, Paul's addressing this all over the New Testament because that's a major one because in the Old Covenant, it's a major one. Do you, do you remember when, when God is threatening to kill Moses and his family because there was a lack of circumcision? Like, that's a big deal. And, and here's what Paul comes and says. Like, he relaxes that significantly and says, you're not, you're not, you're not justified by your circumcision, but by faith. You, you want to become one of God's people it's by faith. You want right standing with God? It's by faith. You want to be justified? It's by faith. That's what he's saying. Paul simply says then, if, if both circumcised and the uncircumcised can be justified by, by faith, they're thinking, well, then that would make God the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And Paul says, yes. The inclusion of Gentiles means that God is their God and they are his people. And Paul uh, backs this up, supports this by employing a well-known thought to the Jewish people, since, he says, because God is one. Verse 30, God is one, since God is one. He, a, a good Jew would have said daily the, the words of Deuteronomy 6.4, which says that God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we saw when we studied Deuteronomy, like, of, that, that is a, a statement of monotheism, yes, but it's a statement of exclusivity, too, like that this God is the one true living God and that he is their God, right? They, and they would have repeated those words, repeated the oneness of God daily and the exclusivity of God daily. And, and Paul is arguing for the, the one way in this 21 through 31, one way for saving righteousness is through faith in Jesus for all peoples, there's no distinction, all have fallen short, and all can be justified by faith. So that's both Jews and Gentiles. And in this one way to have saving righteousness, the way to be part of God's people, God has to be equally then God of Jews and Gentiles since, because God is one. The oneness of God, the exclusivity of God, they aren't only connected to Israel. Through faith in Jesus, now we're all part of this one God through our faith in Jesus. Israel would have heard the words in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, and thought, this is, 
this is only for us, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So if you want to be part of God's people, you, you become part of us. It said, hero Israel. But maybe they had missed a portion of their scripture that I probably missed too. There's another place in the Old Testament that I think Paul brings together here that speaks of the oneness of God. Look in Zechariah chapter 14. And if you don't know where it is, like me, it's tucked in between some of those things in the back of the Old Testament, then you can follow along on the screen. All right, 14 verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one. And his name one. Here in Zechariah, which, man, this speaks to this coming day of the Lord, and there's, there's I mean, uh, if you look up just briefly in this passage, you see just other things that are pointing us to the, the coming day of the Lord through Jesus and what he's going to do. But the oneness and exclusivity of God here, that God is one in Zechariah four, chapter 14, verse 9, is attached to what? His kingship, not over just the Jews. Over all the earth, over all the peoples on the earth. And, and it seems as if maybe Paul brings these two together and saying like kind of what Zechariah spoke of has now begun in the but now, verse 21 of chapter 3 in Romans, but now time of this universal availability of righteousness, saving righteousness from God that has been brought in the time of Jesus. And since God is one, he justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so he's saying that they both, Jew and Gentile, God is the God of them all. He's the God of all the earth. They have equal access to God. The, the dividing wall of hostility has been completely torn down by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so now the people of God are this one people, not Jew and Gentile, but the people in Christ. The, the, those who have faith in Christ people. That's who they are now. When we hear that God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised, like that can get us to kind of miss, I think, because of all the words and we don't have the same setting. It can make us miss the miracle and forget who that is. It's the circumcised that are justified by faith. The self-righteous judge of chapter 2 that thinks that they don't need righteousness. Those who have fallen short of God's glory in that way who are included and justified here in this verse 30. It's the uncircumcised, the chapter one people, the sexually immoral people, those who would be considered by, by the Jews the scum of the earth people. It's those, the immoral idolater that can be justified by faith in Jesus. It's the likes of Zacchaeus who would steal money from his own people in order to get rich himself. It's the likes of Paul who would, who would be so self-righteous, so zealous for the law that he would kill and approve the killing of Christians, those who would follow Jesus. It's the, it's the likes of Lydia who is selling purple goods and, and knows nothing of this one true living God, and is just living life on her own without that. It's through those kind of people, those are the ones that Paul says, they're justified by their faith here. That's miraculous. It, it's not the already kind of good people who need some brushing up. It's the dead in the sin kind of people, right, that need to receive saving righteousness from God. That's the kind that if they stood before God, they would come in and say, I've done nothing but sin against you. I have nothing to boast before you. That's been completely excluded. Oh, I know these things about you, God, and what I know is that I don't match up. I've fallen short. It's those the kind of people that Paul says, hey, they're justified Amen. through faith in Jesus. It's the likes of you and me. Amen. And faith is the way to get in on that justification. Faith is the way to receive saving righteousness from God. Verse 22 of chapter 3. I mean, look at the ways that Paul 
compounds this into us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Verse 25. God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation. How is it to be received? By faith. Verse 26. He is the just and justifier of the one who has faith. Verse 27. It, our boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of what? Faith. Verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith. Verse 30. God is going to justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Friends, faith is crucial. And Paul puts it everywhere so that they wouldn't miss it, so that we wouldn't miss it. Do, do you have faith? Do you believe? It would be silly for us to read all those over and over and over again and assume that we are in. Let's ask, do we believe in Jesus? Do we have faith? Are you receiving and resting in the righteousness that only comes from God? Paul is intent here, not just on his audience grasping the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul is intent here on them possessing actual faith. And that's different. You can hold tightly to the doctrine of justification by faith and not hold tightly to actual faith. And Paul would have us hold on tightly to, to saving righteousness in Jesus, not just hold on rightly to a doctrine. And then what he's saying then is that if you hold on tightly to saving righteousness through Jesus, if you receive it from God, then that transforms the, your life together. Now he's not just God of the Jews or God of the Gentiles. He's God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Is he God of these things? And Paul says, yes. So what's it doing? It's transforming their life together as God's people. It's not through the doctrine of justification by faith, but by actual faith that Jews and Gentiles all live under this one God since God is one. And since it's only through faith and God is one, then we're justified, and those who are justified are this unique community that are being carved out by God himself. It's a beautiful reality. And I love, one pastor said this, who would start a bold new venture with failures? Jesus. He builds his new kind of community with sinners so bad they can't give God a single reason why he should even notice them. Zero boasts, it's excluded, Right? He gathers into his arms those very sinners and says, congratulations, you stand to inherit everything worth having forever. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about saving righteousness. And that this one God scoops up those from all over the earth who would trust in Jesus and says, you now have gained everything that's ever worth having. Only the gospel can form that kind of community. Atheism will never create that kind of community. Other religions will never create that kind of community. Only the gospel can do it. Only the gospel can form it, and only the gospel can fuel it forward. And that's what Paul's doing. He, he is laying the foundation in chapter 3, the foundation needed for Jews and Gentiles to be one people under this one God since God is one. And he's putting the foundation down for what he's going to get to in chapter 12. I'll give this a preview, right? In chapter 12, he says you need to be at harmony with one another and not be haughty. Not, not be arrogant and proud, looking over one another. That's chapter 12, verse 16. In chapter 13, he's going to say, you need to owe no one anything but love 
for one another. In chapter 14, he's going to tell them, hey, don't quarrel about opinions or pass judgment on the weaker brother. In chapter 15, he's going to say, bear with one another and build one another up. And all of those things are going to flow from the, the Romans having received not just the doctrine of justification by faith, but actual faith itself, and them walking by faith in order for that to be lived out amongst a mixed and diverse crowd who still just have one God. That's the only way it works for us, too. It's only by the gospel forming us and, and fueling us. And that one God, he calls all who possess actual faith his own people, and he is one God. And we are saying by faith, remember, it's self-renouncing. It, it, it's by its nature, looks outward. We're all saying he's everything to us. We don't even have a boast, so we don't have a boast before one another. If we don't have a boast before God, what difference would our boast before one another mean anyway? No boasts before God. And so now we all have this one God as this one people. We're his. They have justification, but no boasts. They have circumcision or not circumcision, but they have the same God. That's what Paul's been getting at with these questions. And after all the explanations of, of verse 21 through 30, and the apartness from the law righteousness that he speaks of, there's still a question that, that's present, that would be present, at least in the Jews. For sure in them, and it's found in kind of the third set of questions, this third set that I'm calling the third set of questions in verse 31. He says, well, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do, do we overthrow it? If that law can't produce this righteousness that we need, what should be done with it? Let's overthrow it, nullify it, void it out. What does he say? No way. By no means. He used that earlier. No way. No way we can do that. Now in chapter 3, verse 21, he says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then he further kind of defines law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember, he's saying all the Old Testament. Law and the prophets. So he further defined law and, and gave it a kind of an expansive view. I think that he's maybe a little bit more narrow in his use of law here in verse 31. Here, I think he just means law. That is the precepts of the law. More like verse 26. It, it's more likely in verse 31 that he is referencing the commands of the law. The moral norms of the law. The moral standards of the law. Recalling what he said in chapter 2, verse 26. He says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law. I think that's the idea he's getting at in verse 31. The precepts, the commands of the law. And, and Paul pounces on the question, right? So if I trust in Jesus... What about those commands of the law? Get rid of them? Just throw them to the wayside? Kind of do what I want? He says, no. No way. No. And, and he only gives that here in chapter 3. He's going to give a lot more as we go through the book of Romans. So we can't do more than what he's saying here. But he's saying if you're justified, you don't just get rid of the law. You don't nullify it. You don't just you know, put it to the wayside. You don't just trash it. He says you uphold it. You uphold the law. He'll go on to say, chapter 8, verse 4. Right? The, the, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there, there are those who are justified by faith, they've been given the Spirit, and they, they, they do what? They're, they're fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. The justified who have God's saving righteousness by faith in Jesus, the believer, the Christian, is free through Jesus and through what he's done from the law's curse but now free to live out the righteous requirement of the law, to uphold the law. I found the illustration of thinking about the law as an in-law helpful. 
So the Christians are those who Paul talks about often as those who are in Christ. They are, in a sense, right? right? He's their spouse. He's the husband. We are the, 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 the bride. We're connected to him by marriage, by union, by our faith. We're, we're his. We belong to Christ. He, he bought us. We're, we're redeemed by him. We are his. And because we're his, we are then connected to the law. Right? We're connected to the law by that union, by that marriage to Jesus. Jesus loved the law. He is the Psalm 1 man who, oh, meditate on your law day and night. When, when Jesus, you know, like we think about what's in the heart comes out in the mouth, right? Luke tells us that principle. And Jesus, man, when he's squeezed, what comes out? Like when he has something going on, what comes out of him? Like often he goes to his favorite book, which is also our favorite book, the book of Deuteronomy, right? He, he goes right there because that's what he loves. It's the light of his heart, the law. He's, he's meditating on it day and night. It's his treasure. He's the Psalm 119 man who can come and just uh, overflow with praise for the law. He loves it. And if he loved the law and we're connected to him, then the, the law now is kind of like our in-law. Right? And, and here's what one author says. This is the sense in which the Christian's relationship to the law is that of being an in-law. We're not related to the law directly, as it were, or the law in isolation as bare commandments. The relationship is dependent on the new fruit of our prior relationship to Jesus. So the new covenant believer never looks at the law without understanding that his relationship to it is the fruit of his union with Christ. And we can think about this in in light of our own in-laws, or if you are familiar with that kind of working of relationships. There may be times when we're thinking about the law, we don't like the law's commands. I don't like the law's commands sometimes. When when Luke 10 says, hey, there's this good Samaritan, and you need to love your neighbor like that. Like, I don't like that command sometimes because what it does is it puts me in this place where I got to identify with them. I got to jump in the ditch with them. I got to, it's costly, and and I don't want to love my neighbor like that. So I may not like the law's commands at times. And because that's true, because I don't want to live underneath them, it accuses me for not being righteous. But I dare not overthrow the law, what Christ, who I'm united to, the thing that he loved and upheld and brought to fulfillment in and of his own life, death, and resurrection, I wouldn't overthrow it. I'd want to uphold it. Right? Think about in-laws again. I may not like some of the things that my in-laws will say to me, I might not like what I want to, what they want me to do sometimes. But I don't cut off that relationship because I love my wife, right? I would do anything for her. Are they saying some mean things? We're not cutting this off. You love them. And I love you, so we're not going to cut this off. Like they want me to do something I don't want to do. Well, I love you, so I kind of want to do it too if you want to because I'm Connected to you. Instead, I step into those things because I would do anything for my wife that I love, even if I don't like some of the things that they say and want me to do, I can step into those things because of my wife. Believer, how much more should that be our disposition toward Christ and toward the law? Christ, we've seen it. Verse 21 through 26. What is he? He's our redemption. He bought us back from the slavery to sin that we were sold under, that we couldn't get out from underneath. He, He redeemed us. He's our propitiation, like he himself is the sacrifice that we couldn't give, but he gives it for us. Like he's our redemption, our propitiation. We should love 
him dearly. And out of our love for him and connection to him, we should then want to uphold the law. Amen. Not for our righteousness. Our righteousness and justification is not on the line in upholding the law. It was already on the line and we already blew it. Our righteousness and justification is not on the line in upholding the law. So we're not upholding it for righteousness. Our righteousness, it's ours through Jesus. It's ours in Christ. Our righteousness then should lead us to this free upholding of the law that bore witness to our Christ, the the very law that he loved and he lived out in his life. And and we love him and we want to be like him. And if we want to be like him, we're going to have to think about the law because he lived it out. So to get rid of something that our spouse loves so dearly should receive from our hearts the same answer that Paul gives here. No way. By no means could we do that. So Paul kind of briefly sums up a very massive topic. He'll pick it up in the book of Romans as we go along, but he gives us, what, six questions in a handful of verses, three headings that I gave, and all further detail that the gracious fabric that he's weaving of the gospel the very foundation of their lives before God and of their lives together as a church. This doesn't end all of the questions, but the cornerstone is laid so that the construction work can continue. Justification speaks to then all of life. Saving righteousness, the gospel then speaks to not just how we can be right before God, this one-time thing, it speaks to how we live. It speaks to all of our life. And so if you're justified by faith in Jesus, you have all that you need for eternity. You have all that you need before God, and you have all that you need to walk out this life in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. And I think Paul would say then, what do we do? We live in light of that justification. We live in light of that righteousness. We live out that gospel in our lives together. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, I have to believe that the vast majority of us here this morning are here because we believe that we've been saved by grace through faith alone. But God, I can speak for myself. Our hearts deceive us, Lord. We don't have the boldness to stand before you and boast of our good works or what we perceive to be righteousness in our lives, Lord. But we passively seek comfort in the judgment of others. We compare our lives conveniently to people who we feel are in worse shape than us. And we make ourselves feel better. And Lord, that is, that is boasting. And I've done it and I'll do it. And I know that many of us can relate to that, Lord. We need to keep our eyes fixed on you. That humility would flow from that, that we would see how broken and sinful we are, how far we have to go, and yet how far you have gone for us, Lord. And that our position is secure. We stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Lord. We work from a position, Lord, of, of salvation, we don't work for it, and yet, Lord, so often we, we can live like we're working for it, and we can 
we can place that burden on others. It's why so many in the culture that we live in think that Christianity is just about a set of rules. It's because so often we portray that and we boast in how we keep those rules. And Father, we pray that our boasting would dissolve into praise where it exists. Lord, we pray that you would kill it. We pray that you would keep us mindful always of what you endured so that we might have a boast in Christ, that we might get point to him and say we couldn't do it, but he did it, and he did it for us. God, help us be people who live the gospel out in our lives every day. Help us be a people who love the law because you love the law and because you now have given us your spirit and you've given us power to obey it because of your righteousness, because of what you did. We praise you for that, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.